Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here with everybody this morning. Appreciate you all coming out and spending this Lord's Day with us. If you're a visitor, we're especially glad you're here this morning. And we are in a, a study of the book of Nehemiah. We've titled this Rebuilding Your Future. So if you want to turn there with me. Now, I didn't plan this. We're breaking ground actually this week out here in, in Nehemiah chapter 2. The, this statement here near the end of the chapter is, let us arise and build. So uh, in God's providence, we're at this passage here, and it's a, a great moment for our church. We're excited about what God is doing here and uh, what this uh, whole uh, wing down here is all going to look like, what this room will look like when we're finished. So we're so grateful to God for all of that. Let me uh, read our text for us this morning here in Nehemiah 2, verses 11 through 20 as we begin. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire." There I passed by the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. The Jerusalem is desolate, its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we are his servants. We his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. Uh, Bob Zuppler was a great football coach at the University of Illinois years ago, and uh, once he gave his, his team a tremendous halftime speech. They hadn't done very well at the first half, and, man, he got the players lathered up at halftime. They're going to go out and win the game, and he points to a door over there, and he says, man, we're going to run through that door, and we're going to go out onto the field, and you're going to go out and win this game in the second half, and I'm going to lead you out. So he goes over and opens this door and leads them, and they all ran into the newly constructed swimming pool there at the school. Uh, Coach Zuppler and his enthusiasm had led them out the wrong door, and they all just followed him, man. They all go jump into the water and come out soaking wet. And I like that story because it reminds me of a lot of what we see in our culture today. There are a lot of leaders with a lot of enthusiasm, but no clear idea where they're going. And I think all of us would agree this morning there is a conspicuous vacuum of leadership in our nation today. Uh, there's a vacuum of moral leadership in our government. Uh, there's a vacuum too often of male leadership in our families. And far too often there's a vacuum of ministerial leadership um, in our churches. Um, our nation, our homes, and our churches are suffering terribly uh, from this lack of leadership. You know, someone said years ago, a university professor said there's three kinds of people, those who haven't got a clue what's happening, those who watch what's happening, and those who make things happen. And I love Nehemiah because he's clearly a man who knows how to make things happen. He's a man on a mission. 
He exemplifies for us a true leadership, true biblical leadership. Now, as we talk about leadership today, I want to define it because people say, well, what do you mean by leadership? There's a lot of definitions out there of leadership, but my favorite one, a simple one by Paul Powell, is leadership is nothing more than seeing what needs to be done, figuring out how to do it, and getting people to join you in doing it. That's what leadership is. It's seeing what needs to be done, it's figuring out how to do it, and it's getting people to join you in the effort. Leaders know what to do, they know how to do it, and they know the best time to do it. Now, if you were to read a lot of books on leadership, they would come down and define it ultimately by one word, leadership is influence. When you have influence, you have leadership. And Nehemiah is the consummate leader in the Bible, the consummate influencer. Now, think about this for a moment. The children of Israel have been back in the land from the Babylonian captivity for a hundred years, and the city of Jerusalem still has not been rebuilt. So what hadn't been done in a hundred years, we're going to see in this book, Nehemiah gets it done in 52 days. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a man I'd like to learn a few things from about leadership. Now, as we trace his actions, we're going to discover in this book, among other things, a compelling call in our lives to effective leadership. In Nehemiah, we have patterns of life, but we also have principles of leadership for us to follow. Now, you may say this morning, well, I can just tune out because I'm not a leader. Well, all of us are leaders in some sphere. If you have a family, you're, you're a leader in that family as the, the father in that family. Mothers lead in their families. Uh, maybe you have a business that you lead or you're over several people in the place that you work. Maybe you're a teacher in a classroom. You have a group of students every day that you're leading. Uh, maybe here in this church you help lead one of our ABFs or you're involved in some ministry and you have leadership. All of us have influence and leadership in some sphere. And God wants us to be effective, godly, biblical leaders in whatever sphere uh, that is. And from Nehemiah, we can discover what it looks like to lead effectively wherever God has placed us. Now, up to this point in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen Nehemiah praying and planning, waiting for God's timing, you remember, to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And he waited for God's providential hand to turn the doorknob of opportunity. You remember, he's the cupbearer of the king, and he was waiting for God to give him the right opportunity to ask the king to go back. And God finally turned that doorknob of opportunity. And when he did that, Nehemiah was ready to go. And we left off last time in verse 10 of chapter 2 as Nehemiah has led the third return of the Jewish people from Judah uh, uh, to Judah uh, from Babylon or from, from Persia who's overtaken them. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, we're going to see Nehemiah getting things going. And what I want to do this morning is look at four simple patterns of effective leadership that you and I need to employ, and these will form the outline of our passage. We see Nehemiah resting. We're going to see Nehemiah researching, Nehemiah rallying or recruiting the people, and then we're going to see Nehemiah resisting um, his opponents. Now, getting going here in this passage begins with resting. Notice verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Nehemiah and his entourage have traveled 800 miles to Jerusalem from Persia, probably about a three-month journey. It would have been an, a long, arduous, um, exhausting journey. 
And after this hundred-day trip, think about this, Nehemiah saw the city of Jerusalem for the very first time. I don't know how old he is. He's heard about it all of his life. But for the very first time, his eyes see uh, the city of Jerusalem. And it must have been overwhelming. I mean, it's easy when you're back in Persia and hear about the walls broken down to get fired up about going and rebuilding the place. But I bet when they came over the first hill and he could see the ruins and and the rubble of the city, I bet it was somewhat of an overwhelming sensation uh, that he had. I mean, it had been in that condition for 140 years. Weeds grown up all over the place. I mean, it must have been a sad, depressing sight to see. But it's fascinating to me in verse 11, the first thing that happens when Nehemiah and his retinue arrive there is nothing. The first thing he does is nothing. It's like someone has said, before something happens, nothing happens. Before everything starts, everything stops. In fact, one writer I read this week said, you know, we've got that saying, don't just stand there, do something. But with Nehemiah, it's don't just do something, stand there. I mean, there's a pause in the action. The action comes to a screeching halt. I like what Stephen Davey says about this passage. He says, that is, that is not exactly what we would expect to read. Nehemiah has the permission of the king. He has the financing he needs for the work. But for three days, he's not told anyone in Jerusalem why he's even come. I would have expected Nehemiah to set up a trailer on the side, unload his gear, unpack his tools, hire the bricklayers, roll in the heavy equipment, interview subcontractors, have a backhoe start digging the footings, and say, let's build some walls around here. He says, maybe you're tempted to ask, what's the holdup, Nehemiah? You're losing time, man. Get going. And that is a temptation for all leaders because leaders, usually their natural instinct is to keep moving ahead and to keep working and to keep charging forward. But think about this. Nehemiah has been on this three-month journey that's taken a toll on him. And Nehemiah knew that he needed to be at his best to go and survey what was happening in the city and motivate the people and rally them to this cause. So he pauses for three days to rest and to recuperate. And there's a good lesson for us here. You can't be a good leader and be exhausted. That's true in your home, in your business, in this church, wherever it is. When you're exhausted, you lose perspective. And burned out leaders will not be much help uh, to anybody. Now, there's an old quote, and I've heard it attributed to George Patton, and I've heard it attributed to to Vince Lombardi. I'm not sure who said it, but it's a good quote, and it says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. When you're tired, you lose perspective, uh, you lose your energy. There's a a, a true saying, we can often do more by doing less. I like the story of an angry church member that... uh, saw the pastor and she said, Pastor, I'm really upset with you. I phoned you Monday and I tried to get a hold of you all day long and I was unable to get a hold of you. And the pastor told the lady, he said, well, ma'am, he said, "Uh, Monday's my day off. She looked at him and said, what? She said, a day off? She said, the devil never takes a day off. And the pastor looked at her and said, I don't know when the devil became my example. (laughs) It's pretty good, isn't it? Look, Jesus is our example, not the devil. And Jesus often took time off to rest and to pray. And we need to follow his example. In fact, in Mark 6.30, Jesus told his disciples, come, up, come apart by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. Jesus called his disciples. They were in a busy time to, to come aside and to rest. 
The old Baptist preacher, Vance Havner, I like a statement he makes about this. Jesus said, come apart by yourselves. Vance Havner says, if you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. And that's true. There's a lot of people out there today coming apart, and they're really not effective in leadership in any way because they're, they're frazzled and they're exhausted and worn out. The first thing Nehemiah does is get rested up and get prayed up and spends time alone with God for three days. I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, uh, Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer founded the seminary. He would, had been long deceased when I was there. But one of my professors was there uh, back when Dr. Chafer was at the seminary. And he said he used to tell the students sometimes in chapel, he'd say, men, the most spiritual thing that you can do sometimes is to get a good night's rest. We don't think about that as being some spiritual activity, but it's time for God to re-energize us. Now, I know some of you here are thinking, well, man, you ought to be at my workplace or in my business and t tell me about trying to get some rest. Or you ought to be in my family with the kids and all the stuff going on. Look, it's difficult to do it. If it was easy to do it, everyone would have a, a good rhythm of work and rest in their lives. It's difficult to do. But it's imperative that we do it if we want to be effective leaders. You can begin by finding short, brief times to find respites. We can be re-energized and let God pour into your life. I love this in verse 12. Notice what Nehemiah says. He says, I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I didn't tell anyone what God was putting into my mind or into my soul or heart. During those three days, God was pouring into the soul of Nehemiah. He was pouring into his soul the plans that he had for him, and I think pouring energy into him and insight and vision into his life. So one of the things that happens when you and I rest is we allow God to pour into our soul and into our life and to energize us. So getting going begins with a rested leadership. Effective leaders need to be rested and be in tune with God and have a, a balanced rhythm of rest and work in their lives. Now, after resting, we find Nehemiah researching in verses 12 through 16. After relaxation comes investigation. Uh, back in chapter 1, we see Nehemiah, this man of tears and prayer. And now in chapter 2, we see Nehemiah as a, a practical strategist. Now, I don't want to read through verses 12 to 16 and all these different gates and places that are there and the wells and all those things because... They really don't mean that much to most of us here. And even if you go to Jerusalem today, it's in different places. But what it's telling us here is Nehemiah goes out at night on a midnight journey. It only takes one animal with him that he rides, just a few people. It's a clandestine secret mission. And he goes out at night to look over and see what's happening there. He wants to see the devastation firsthand because there's something about seeing things with your own eyes. So he wants to see it for himself. He, he's going to go out and size up what needs to be done. He's going to conduct a kind of a feasibility study, if you will. I like to call it getting the lay of the land. He wants to see what's happening there. He wants to define the size and the scope of this task. And if you follow this in, in, uh, geographically, he starts on the western side of the city and goes along the southern wall, the rubble there, ends up on the east side of the city. I mean, it's so bad there that at one point it says I had to get down off of the, the animal I was riding. You know, you couldn't even take an animal through their riding on it. I mean, it's so bad. Probably there's a, uh, the moonlight is guiding them as they're going through this rubble in the dark. Think about that, how things often look in the moonlight at night, seeing the rubble and the weeds and all that grown up there. 
Nehemiah, though, is is a smart leader. It's important to work hard, but it's even more important to work smart. And Nehemiah is a smart leader who does his homework, who's prepared. But he goes out at night and kind of flies under the radar and keeps this low key. It's kind of like the old saying, he keeps his cards close to his chest, if you will. And he only takes one animal to maintain this utmost uh, utmost secrecy. And I think he wants to survey the scope of this task without drawing undue attention to himself. And he's already arrived from Persia with a, a retinue of helpers and some soldiers that helped him get there. And so probably there's already been a bit of a stir in Jerusalem about this cupbearer of King Artaxerxes who's arrived. But he doesn't want his enemies to get a head start on knowing his intentions. So he goes out secretly at night to survey uh, the situation. Now again, it must have devastated him seeing this stuff up close. It's probably worse than he even imagined. But but we see here in this passage that effective godly leadership requires preparation. He's developing, and God is working in his life, developing a God-directed plan for what to do. Now, I mentioned this last time, but I want to emphasize it again. Trusting God is not synonymous with thoughtlessness, sloppiness, or disorganization. Some people think, well, I'm just trusting God. Look, trusting God, we all want to trust God and pray, but we also have to plan and strategize. God honors that. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, faith and planning must go together. When zealous Christians with strong faith allow themselves to go goofy when it comes to orchestrating a cherished enterprise, failure regularly results. Not because God is not responsive to faith, but because it is not His way to applaud and bless goofiness. Now, I like that. God doesn't applaud and bless goofiness. God blesses and applauds those who trust in Him, who seek Him, who pray, but also plan and and strategize. Nehemiah's practical preparation here is is a model for us. He carefully develops a plan. Um, Nehemiah is not like what I read a while back that people said about Christopher Columbus. It says when he left, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And when he returned home, he didn't know where he'd been. And I think sadly, that's how too many leaders are today. That's not Nehemiah. He has a clear plan of what he's doing. Now, all of us here that are parents or grandparents, we periodically give our children or our grandparents advice, right? Sometimes they ask for it, normally not, but we give it to them anyway. And one of the things that I I told my sons over and over again as they were growing up is there's no substitute in life for preparation. The people that I've known that are successful in whatever they do, they're prepared. They know what they're doing. They do their homework and they're prepared. There's no substitute for that. You can have brains, you can have charisma, you can have all kinds of things and those will help. But ultimately, there's no substitute for preparation. And Nehemiah is a prepared man with a plan that God has given to him. You all know how I like to alliterate things. You'll start words with the same letter. Here's some pretty good alliteration. It's called the seven P's of planning. Proper prior planning prevents pitifully poor performance. Now say that five times fast, right? Proper prior planning prevents pitifully poor performance. That's what Nehemiah does. He's got a plan that God has given to him. Now, after fully surveying the situation, getting his head straight, he's now ready to recruit other people to help him. Nehemiah is ready to unveil his plan. He's ready to pull the trigger. 
Um, He's planned his work, and now he's going to work his plan, if you will. And in verses 17 and 18, we see the rallying or the recruiting of the people to help him in this, because he has to have the others to help him in this effort. So Nehemiah motivates the people to follow him in rebuilding the walls. I like what Harry Truman said years ago. He said, leadership is the ability to get men to do what they don't want to do and make them like it. That's a great definition. It's to get people to do what they don't want to do and then to like it. And Nehemiah gets the people to do what they haven't done for 100 years, what evidently they don't want to do, but they begin, they, they end up liking what they're doing, and we'll see that as we go along. He has this ability to infuse his passion into them, and they like what they're doing. One of the important things we see here about leaders is leaders don't, at least good leaders, don't manipulate people, they motivate people. Leaders motivate, and that's what a leader does, and that's what Nehemiah does in this text before us. Now, one of the things that leaders do is leaders see things that other people don't see, and then they help people see it. Notice in verse 17, I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in. Now, they all saw that. I mean, they weren't blind. They could see the the, the devastation around them. The Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah saw more in the dark than these people had seen in the light. And that's what leaders do. Leaders help people see things that they don't see. I like the story about Walt Disney. On October the the 1st of 1971, five years after the great Walt Disney passed away, Disney World had its grand opening. And during the dedication ceremony, someone said to Mrs. Walt Disney, she said, it's a shame that Walt didn't live to see this. She responded, he did see it, that's why it's here. (laughs) I like that. He saw it, that's why it's here. Nehemiah is like that. And we need to be like that in whatever arena of leadership God uh, has given to us. Look, the, the people saw the walls torn down and the gates burned, but they didn't really see what was going on. The people saw the devastation, but they didn't see the disgrace it was to God's name. The people saw the ruins and the rubble, but they didn't see the reproach. I mean, going all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 3, the very first thing that Nehemiah does is he says, the remnant there in the province survived the captivity in great distress and reproach. The wall is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. The people see the, the ruins, but they don't see that it's a reproach to the name of God. And for Nehemiah, the glory and the reputation of God is what he was concerned about. He was being mocked and maligned by the nations around them. They were saying, look, the, the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh, he's not strong enough uh, to give his people security and prosperity there. It was that they were an object of laughter and derision. And Nehemiah moves the people by what moves him, and what moves him is a passion for the glory of God and for the name of God. There are a lot of ways to motivate people, to try to motivate them, to get them to do something. Uh, There's extrinsic motivation. You can try to do external things to motivate people. But there's also intrinsic motivation, which actually is much more powerful. And Nehemiah here uses intrinsic motivation. 
he doesn't come to the people. Now, what I probably would have done is said, look, you guys need to get on, on the ball here and build this thing. you got no security without a wall. It's going to help you, right? If you get this wall all built, you're going to be more secure. Or, man, we need to build this wall. Think about if you get this wall built of the prosperity that you'll have. I mean, you'll have safety and, and people will move businesses here and there'll be great prosperity for the city. All of that was true and those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But Nehemiah's primary motivation is the glory of God. That's what he's concerned about. Look, you can motivate people with guilt. Now, that's not a good motivator, but you can do it. You can motivate people with, with uh, good. You can say, look, this is going to benefit you and your family. But the highest motivation is the glory of God. God's name is bound up in what we do. It's true here at this church. The preaching of the gospel, baptizing believers, celebrating the Lord's Supper, instructing and teaching God's people to grow, training up children and young people to follow the Lord and uh, to, to go out and, and, and impact the world in this next generation. The, the purpose in all of that is to glorify God. And it's this intrinsic motivation to do these things, to glorify the name of God that should set us on fire here in this place. You know, probably one of the greatest motivators that used intrinsic motivation was Winston Churchill. Uh, Cheryl and I went uh, a few weeks ago or a few months ago, I guess now, and saw that movie, Darkest Hour. It's a very good movie. I enjoyed it. A great movie about Churchill and his motivating of the, the, the uh, people in Great Britain. But um, just three days after Hitler had occupied Belgium, France, and Holland, uh, Churchill gave this famous speech. Now, what a way to begin. I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And that's a great way to motivate people, right? It's all I have to offer. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all of our might, with all of our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there's no survival. And then later when the bombs began to, to fall and, and they looked like they might have to stand alone against Nazi Germany, he said this, we will not flag or fail. We will go on to the end. We will fight in France. We will fight on the seas and oceans. We will fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I love that. I mean, that's intrinsic motivation. In fact, there's a great quote by Churchill, if I can remember it. It's something like people talked about him being the great lion. And he said, no, the people of England were the one with the lion's heart. All I did was give the roar. He roared and the people rallied uh, to this cause. It was an intrinsic motivation. And you say, man, after hearing speeches like that, nobody should have signed up. But the nation rallied behind him. And men signed up by the tens of thousands to defend the homeland because Churchill appealed a love of country and what was right and what was worth dying for, and that was enough. And God's glory should be cause enough for you and for me. The glory of Christ should be motivation enough for us to do the things God's called us to do. 
Look, it's sad today. So many churches manipulate people to try to get them to do what they want them to do. But I believe that the cause that we are following gives something, then you're not where you need to be spiritually. The glory of God should be reason enough. The people have been back for almost 100 years. The wall has been broken down. And he says, look, this is a reproach and it's a disgrace. One of the things I see here as well is evidently the people had gotten used to things being that way. I mean, again, they've been there for 100 years. They'd gotten used to the ruin and the rubble. And they needed somebody to come in from the outside and to call them higher uh, to, to get rid of this disgrace and this reproach. And there's an application here for us because we can get used to things being in ruin in our lives as well. A lot of people just get used to their marriage being in ruins over a period of time and they just settle for that. Or people can get used to a, a church or a ministry just being mediocre and having a lot of rubble lying around. Look, don't get used to things and then just ride along with them. The glory of God is at stake in what we're doing. The ultimate reason for you to have a good marriage is not for you to be happy. Now, that's a good thing, and I think God's pleased by that. But the ultimate reason for you to have a godly marriage is to have an ungodly marriage as Christians is a reproach. It's a disgrace. You have a family that doesn't bring honor and glory to God. That should be our highest intrinsic motivation. Our highest intrinsic motivation in this church should be to glorify God. That should be the thing that drives us. And we don't want to just get used to things being uh, the way they are. A leader comes in and says, look, this needs to change. And there may be some husbands and fathers today in your families that there's things there in your marriage and in your family that are in ruins. And you need to take it up today and say, look, this is a reproach and it's a disgrace to God. And I want to call our marriage and our family and everything that we do, I want to call us up higher so that we can bring glory to God and glory through His name. That's the ultimate motivation that Nehemiah uses here. It's the ultimate one we need. Now notice verse 17. There's another thought here about leadership, and that is Nehemiah is in this with the people. He identifies with them. Notice he says, you see the bad situation we are in. The Jerusalem is desolate, its gates burned by fire. Come let us rebuild the wall that we may no longer be a reproach. Leaders identify with the people and with the project. You can't inspire people at a distance. And so he leads them by example. He's in it with them. Because people don't follow projects and follow programs. Ultimately, they follow leaders. And they follow their enthusiasm and their example. So he calls people to join the enterprise, but he's not passive about it. He's engaged. We have this prayerful, intense man who's come 800 miles to be with them, and he's bursting with the glory of God. And that's the kind of uh, fathers and mothers we need. Um, it's the kind of leaders we need in business. It's the kind of elders that we need in the church. And that's the kind of people that you and I, I hope, want to follow. But again, you can't motivate people from the box seats. He's down there saying, we and us and we. And then in verse 18, he goes on to give testimony of God's faithfulness to him. I told him how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and about the king's words which he had spoken to me. He tells them what God has done in his own life. And he tells the people, look, it's evident God's hand is upon my life. He wants them to know that it's God who's doing this. And he says, 
I told him about the king's words. He says, look, it wasn't my own uh, great personality or my charisma that got the king to let me come back here. It was God who did it. He gives God the glory. He's saying God's behind all of this. So Nehemiah is persuaded that God is behind what he's doing, and he's persuaded that God's hand is upon him. And if we want to persuade other people and motivate them, they better see it in us, right? I mean, Nehemiah's own life here strikes a chord in the heart of these people. And if you and I want to motivate our children and motivate our grandchildren to follow the Lord, they better see it in us. They better see it in our own lives. A real, true, living testimony for God is a powerful motivation for other people to follow you and follow me as we follow Christ. But to persuade other people, you have to be persuaded yourself. Leaders are persuaded people. The result of all this, the people say in verse 18, let us arise and build, and they put their hands to the good work. Now, the final thing, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, verse 19 and 20, because we're going to see this a lot as we go along, but leaders courageously face opposition. We see Nehemiah here resisting. And again, what we have here is, is a, a, a clear picture of whenever God begins a work, Satan always comes in to try to oppose and try to thwart that work of God. It's consistent throughout Scripture. And we see these three men, Sanballat the Horonite, he's the governor of Samaria, which is north of Judah. Tobiah the Ammonite, he's the governor of Ammon, which is over to the east. And Geshem the Arab, he's a, a, an Arab chieftain who would have been in charge of the people down to the south. So they kind of got him surrounded. They don't want to see God's people successful there in the city of Jerusalem. So right as soon as they put their hand to the work, this opposition arises. But we see from, from Nehemiah here, he's not intimidated by this at all. He knows God's with him. I love his answer. Verse 20, I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. He doesn't say, look, I, you know, I came here, I've got all this timber, I've got all these supplies, I've got this financing, um, I've got uh, you know, the permission of Artaxerxes, you know, I was his cupbearer. No, he says, look, the one who's going to give us success in this, if it gets done, is the God of heaven. He knows that God is with him. So these men come and they ridicule the people and mock them. And they say, look, you guys are rebelling against the king. The same old tactics they've used back earlier in the book of Ezra that worked, but Nehemiah will have none of it. It says, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. You have no portion, ride, or memorial in Jerusalem. Basically, he says, you guys have no right to be here. Just get out of here and leave me alone. Now, these guys aren't going to go away. This is the, I call this the troublesome trio here. These guys are going to show up in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, and Tobiah is going to show up all the way at the end of the book again. These guys do not give up. They're relentless in their opposition to the work of God. But Nehemiah is going to be equally relentless in his resistance to this, courageously standing against it uh, to get God's work done. Look, whatever arena God's given you, whatever sphere you lead in, we need to understand that effective leaders are rested and they're in tune with God. Now, you may say this morning again, man, I'd like to get some rest from what I'm doing. And I'm busy. I'm worn out. Begin to pray about that and seek that and seek times when you can get alone with God. Leaders who are effective practice a rhythm of rest and work in their lives that makes them effective. Leaders see what others don't see and they help them see it. 
Leaders appeal to the highest cause to motivate people. They, they appeal to the glory of God. Leaders identify with the people they lead. They participate with them. Leaders have a testimony and evidence of God's work in their own lives. And leaders wisely, courageously resist opposition. I pray that God can take these principles this morning and work them uh, into our hearts and lives. But before we go this morning, I want to mention one final thing. We were talking a lot about planning and strategizing and all of that. Did you know that the, the ultimate consummate planner in the universe is God himself? God is a planner. And one of God's greatest plans is his plans for saving mankind. God's plan of salvation is a beautiful plan. It's a wonderful plan. God has left nothing to chance when it comes to your salvation and my salvation. God sent his son, the Bible says, in the fullness of time to die on the cross. He rose from the dead. God's plan was for Jesus to die as your substitute and my substitute, to die in our place. And here's the thing. There's no other plan. This is the only plan. It's God's plan for saving those who are separated from him by their sins. And the beauty of this plan is God planned it all, God performed it all, God has done it all, and all you and I have to do is to simply receive it. We have to simply look at that plan and say, God, that is a beautiful plan, it's a wonderful plan. Thank you for providing salvation for me uh, through your son. Look, whatever you do, don't leave your salvation and your eternal destiny to chance. There's an old saying that a fool is someone whose plans end at the grave. So a lot of people, they've made a lot of plans in this life, but they're a fool because their plans end at the grave. The most important plans you'll make in your life are the plans for what will happen to you after this life for your eternal destiny. Make sure you have Christ as your Savior here this morning. Uh, don't leave it to chance. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray if there's anyone here who's never experienced the the good of the plan of salvation, that they would receive Christ this morning. We thank you for the beautiful, wonderful plan of Jesus dying in our place, of doing everything for us so that we can have a relationship with you. Father, I pray for all of us here this morning. We're all leaders in some arena, in some sphere. Father, there's many things we've talked about here this morning, but I pray that above everything else, one thing we'd take with us our lives are to be about the glory of God. Your name is at stake. And if in any way this morning, any of us would say in our marriage, in our family, in our work, here in this church, that in any way that God is being disgraced and a reproach because of what we're doing and how we're living, we're just getting used to living among the rubble and the ruins. God, you'd convict our hearts of that here this morning. Every, above everything else in our lives, we'd be about the glory of God. Father, I pray that people can see that in our hearts and in our lives. They'll be motivated to live for you as they see us following you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we're dismissed. If you're a guest or a visitor, again, we're glad you're here. If you'll go out these doors around the corner, there's a, a welcome center. There's some folks there that'd love to give you some more information about our church. Let's uh, bow our heads now before the Lord as we are dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come on the Lord's Day, to gather here with your people and to sing your praises and to fellowship together, to open up the Word of God. Father, I pray that you'll go with us now and 
wherever we lead, whatever opportunities we have to lead, Father, help us to take these things we've learned here today and for them to be real in our hearts and lives so that you can be glorified. Father, we need your help in this, so we pray as we leave here today that we'll leave with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, Amen.